Good morning. Everybody doing okay? Good? Good? No one, on the, no one on this side over here? You guys okay over here? Good, good. Hope everyone had a good fall break. Um, we went, I, I know you guys don't care about these things. I just, I love you guys and I just want to like, I just feel like I want to talk to you sometimes. So we, we went to Indianapolis and um, I don't know if you know that's where Kyle's from. That's not why we went to Indianapolis. We're not weirdos. Uh, but um, went up there, got out of town. Um, that was cool. It was funny, we're driving around downtown Indianapolis and I'm like, it is easier to get around Indianapolis than it is Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That's not even a joke. I feel like people drive nicer and not as fast and they let you over if you have your blinker on, crazy stuff like that. And uh, my daughters were like, we should move here. And I'm like, well, we have a lot going on in Murfreesboro, so, <laughs> so we, can't, we can't move here. It was nice. Another thing that I find interesting, I don't know if you guys, if you're from, we're at the 11, so we just have, we, we just have all the time. So, so um, I don't know if anyone else notices this who's lived in Tennessee for any amount of time. Whenever you travel out of this state, how much better you breathe? Does, is anyone else like that besides me? You get out of Tennessee and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, there's not mucus in my nose and, and I can breathe and I'm not coughing and it's wild. And then right on your way back, it's like right when you cross that Tennessee line, you can almost like start to feel your chest get congested again and you're like, what is happening in Tennessee? And uh, I don't know if anyone else feels like that besides me. I, I remember I went to Las Vegas for the first time last year for a car show. I feel like I have to clarify that. Um, going back again this year for the same car show. But anyways, was in Vegas last year. It was my first time in the desert like that in Vegas. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's 78 degrees in November and I can breathe. This is, this is paradise. Uh, and then you're in Las Vegas and you're like, no, it's not paradise at all. It's quite disgusting. So, okay, I'm sorry. All that's boring. We'll, we'll get to the Bible. Let me, let's talk about that. So we are in the book of Esther. We're actually going to finish up the book of Esther. If you've never been here before, this is what we do. We take a book of the Bible and we go through it word for word, line by line, verse by verse, and um, break it down. And, and I think it's the best way to, to, to kind of talk about the word of God. And I think it's the best way to, to teach in a church environment so we're going to wrap up Esther today. Next week, we'll start the book of Ephesians, which will be fun. And then, yeah, Ephesians fan back here. And then after that, we will start the book of James, which I think is very good for men because it's very straightforward. And uh, I like the book of James. Everyone will like the book of James. I'm just saying for men, it's just do this, don't do this, you know, and, and um, it's very good for us. So uh, that's what we'll be doing. Let me catch up to speed real quick if you haven't been here. So the book of Esther, which I've, I've found to be I found it to be very, very fascinating. In the first couple of chapters, we meet the king of Persia, a guy named Xerxes. The Bible calls him King Ahasuerus. So when I say that, that means King Xerxes. We meet him and we briefly meet his wife, not for very long, a woman named Vashti, who they have a disagreement. Vashti is banished, more than likely killed and disposed of. That starts a hunt for a new queen and all of the young, attractive virgins from all over Persia, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, are basically abducted, brought in, beautified, cleaned up, you know, and, and they are presented to the king for him to basically sleep with each one of them and then to choose who he wants to be the queen. This is when we are introduced to a 14-year-old Jewish girl named Esther. We're also introduced to her, it's actually her cousin, but became an adopted father, uh, a man named Mordecai. And then a little bit later on, we're introduced to a man named Haman who not only hates Mordecai, he hates all of the Jewish people, devises a plan and passes a law that on a certain day, 
Everyone in Persia will attack the Jewish people and they will completely annihilate the Jews. This is then met with a plan from Esther, who is now 20 years old, a little bit of time has passed, and Esther prays, fasts, she gets this plan from God, she is given this plan from God, she starts to enact this plan, they, they, they turn things around, Haman is executed, uh, they pass a law saying that on the day when the law passes, because the laws were irrevocable, on the day when it's legal for everyone to kill the Jews, there will be a second law that contradicts that. This says the Jews can defend themselves and kill the people who are trying to kill them. And that's what we're gonna see happen in chapters nine and 10. What we talked about last week though is we talked about trust. That if we're living in a relationship with God, we can trust that God's gonna pave a way for us. Not only can we trust that God is gonna open up doors for us if we're living in a relationship with him, people around us will also be positively affected. At the end of chapter eight, it said that not only were Esther and Mordecai and, and, and the Jewish people blessed, right? But all of these other people started giving their lives and started living for the true God because of what the followers of God had done. And so it, it, it affects other people. This week, we're gonna talk about this, and, and it's gonna be fun. You're gonna, have a, you're gonna have an absolute blast this morning. Um, that was funny. Uh, uh, what we're gonna talk about today is this. We're gonna talk about something that is absolutely countercultural to everything you hear in the United States. What we're gonna talk about today is that, that life is really not about you. It's really not about the individual. It is about something greater than the creation. It is about the creator. That's what we're gonna talk about today. And that'll all make sense once we get to the end of chapter 10. We're gonna do chapter nine and 10. Chapter nine's a little long. Chapter 10 is very, very, very short. And uh, we'll get through it relatively quick this morning, okay? So you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm gonna say is in there. Everything will be on the screens around the room. If you have the Experience Community app, I don't know why you wouldn't have the Experience Community app, but if you have the Experience Community app, just click on sermon notes. Everything is right there. And if you have a Bible, an old school Bible, right after the book of Nehemiah, you have the book of Esther, which again, I have found to be fascinating. And we will wrap it up uh, today, okay? So I'm gonna pray and um, we'll see what happens, right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, thank you so much for this church, Lord. Thank you for everyone in this room this morning. Thank you, God, that we can come into a place that is safe, uh, that is comfortable, that we can freely worship you that we can break open the Bible and we can learn about you. God, if there's anyone on a journey this morning, maybe they're not a believer, but they're looking, they're seeking. Lord, I pray that something today piques their interest, God, that, that, that starts them going in that direction of pursuing you. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on our church, not just our church. We pray for every church in Murfreesboro. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those cities, God. We pray that your kingdom, God, advance, not our church, your kingdom. And Lord, um, as we study today, God, I pray that it's not about us, that ultimately it is about you, your honor, God, and what you've done for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's rock and roll. I think you're gonna enjoy the end of this. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. 
In each of King Ahasuerus's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So this is nine months after chapter eight. So what happened if you weren't here, there was a law that was passed that was irrevocable, right? On this day, it is just, just anyone can attack any Jew, kill them and steal all of their stuff. Because that couldn't be revoked, a second law was passed saying, well, the Jews can defend themselves. So when the day finally went into effect, these contradictory edicts went into effect, it looked like the Jews were gonna be wiped out, but that's not what happened. It actually says just the opposite happened, and the Jews overpowered those who hated them. So wherever there were Jews all over the Persian Empire, they rallied together and they attacked those who were going to attack them. And it says not a single person could stand up against the Jews. So now the Jewish people were not only represented by the, by the queen, right, Esther, they were represented by Mordecai, who was the second most powerful man in the entire world at this time. So the Jewish people became increasingly powerful. And it says that fear of the Jews rested on every single nationality in the Persian empire. Now here's something that's important. The fear of the Jews was not about the Jews at all. It wasn't about Mordecai and Esther. It was about the favor of God on these people. So it wasn't about them. It was about God in them, which, which leads us to believe that when we live as the people of God, that is our source of strength. That is our source of security. It's not anything that we do. It's not how we live. And so we often can sometimes get arrogant and say, well, look at all the amazing things I've done, but it's, but it's not you. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from God. So we have to make sure we give that credit where credit is really due. So it's about God in us. So we gain the favor of God. How do we, how do we, how do we live in the favor of God? We live in the favor of God by humbling ourselves and following his lead, doing what he wants us to do. So when we are genuinely Christ followers, we throw around the word Christian in the United States way too haphazardly. When we are true followers of Jesus, Jesus turns the tables in our lives, but ultimately he gets all the credit. He's our savior because we need saving. We can't do it ourselves. So what that means is this, Jesus is our source of true success. When I say success there, I'm not just talking about monetary success. And there's nothing wrong with monetary success. If you have a lot of money, praise God, I hope you do something good with it that benefits other people. But when we're talking about true success, without Jesus, there is no hope for joy, for peace, for contentment, for healthy marriages, for healthy relationships. He is our source of success. Not only is Jesus our source of success, because we have to be honest, Jesus is also our source of tension in this world. Do you guys know what I'm saying? The people of God have never had it easy. 
from day one all the way till the end of time. There will be tension in this world because you align yourself with Jesus Christ. Corey, how do you know that? Because Jesus said, they will hate you because of my name. Because you're associated with me, there will be people that will hate you. So Jesus is our source of success. He is also our source of tension. That means that we can be successful, but it's not gonna be easy. It's not, gonna, it's not always gonna be a walk in the park, okay? Now, this next part is pretty interesting to me. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including those guys. They killed the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatta, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will be done. Esther answered, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa, that was the capital city, also have tomorrow to carry out today's laws. And may the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done, so a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's 10 sons. They were already dead, mind you. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 more men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month, and they rested on the 15th day, and that became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in the villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Okay, um, here in a second, I'm gonna be really, really honest with you guys in the hopes that you won't crucify me over it and maybe you can be honest a little bit too. Before I get to that though, it says that on the day when these two contradictory edicts passed, the Jews preemptively destroyed the people who were planning on killing them. Let me tell you what this is like. If you are in a room and someone has a knife and they say, I'm going to kill you, right? When this time hits, I'm gonna stab you with this knife and you're gonna die. If you're in that room, you would be wise to preemptively attack them and take them out first. That's what is going on here. The Jews took an offensive posture from a defensive necessity. Now, before I get into that here in a second, there are spiritual lessons that we learn from the Old Testament. There are literal historical things that happened in the Old Testament that we can pull out and we can use them as metaphors for how we live spiritually today. Let me give you an example. Sometimes in church, you'll hear a pastor or a teacher say, we don't need to go back to Egypt. They're not saying we don't need to literally go back to Egypt. Most of us in this room haven't been to Egypt. 
Egypt from the Old Testament is symbolic of sin and bondage. So we don't go back to sin and bondage. We don't go to captivity of sin, right? Egypt, if you will. We see something like this in this part, that we are to be preemptive when it comes to our enemy. Our enemy spiritually is Satan. So the Bible says that we are to be offensive with Satan, not reactionary to Satan. That means if we wait for Satan to strike first and we are not spiritually ready for that, we're gonna fall. So we have to be offensive in the fact that we have to pray, we have to fast, we have to live righteously according to the teachings of the Bible. We have to attack first, if you will, okay? So we learn this lesson. Now here's where I'm going to be extremely transparent and vulnerable and honest with you guys today. Sometimes when I study the Bible, and chapter nine was one of those chapters, I was actually in our, our, our dining room right off of our kitchen, and my wife's doing something in the kitchen, she's doing the dishes or something. I'm studying this, and I say, Alicia, it's my wife, do you have a problem with, with how the Old Testament sometimes, how, how God basically tells people to, to wipe out whole groups of people? To, if, if you've never read the Old Testament, it's bloody, very, very bloody. If you've never read the book of Joshua, I mean, it's bloody. A lot of people die in Joshua. A lot of people die right here, 75,000. And so when I read stuff like this, this is where I'm being honest and vulnerable. When I read stuff like that from the Old Testament and then I read Jesus say, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, love those that hate you, it, it, it's hard sometimes in my mind to reconcile those two things. So what do we do? And listen, maybe I'm the only one in the room who has ever thought stuff like that. But sometimes it's hard to reconcile that. One of the things we cannot do as Christians because it's theologically bad is sometimes I hear Christians say, well, the Old Testament God. Wait a second. Jesus in the book of Matthew is the Old Testament God. It is the same person. They are one and the same. That's why it says in Colossians, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. They are one. And we cannot separate the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New Testament. So what we learn when we read this entire book and study this entire book in its proper context, we learn in the New Testament that the God we serve is gracious, he is merciful, he is benevolent, he is kind. We learn that. We also learn in the Old Testament that the same God is also a God of justice, that he brings evil into account. Here is the bottom line though. If we're honest, anyone else in the room, it is not always easy to understand everything in the Bible and why God did all the things he did. But here's the thing. You and I are not called to understand everything God does. We are called to understand the nature and character of God. Just like all of you in this room who are parents, your kids don't have to understand everything you teach them. They just need to trust your character. They need to trust you as their father, you as their mother. So I don't understand everything God does, but I do understand the nature of my heavenly father. I understand that God is good. I understand that he is the creator. I am the creation. He knows more than me and he wants what's best for me. So we have to understand the nature and character of God. And so another part of that though is Haman and all of these people who wanted to destroy the Jews come from a long lineage of people who wanted to wipe out the people of God. And God told some of his people in the past, even as far back as the book of Exodus, to, to neutralize this threat, to take care of this threat, or it's going to come back to get you. And we learn another 
huge spiritual principle from the Old Testament that we can apply to our lives today. If we don't completely eradicate the evil in our lives, I give you my word, it will come back and it will destroy you. This is why Christians cannot have manageable sin in their life. There is no such thing as manageable sin. That's like saying I have manageable cancer. It does not work, right? Cancer spreads, it destroys unless it is taken care of. And so oftentimes Christians will live 90% of their life pretty good, but they got this one little sin over here, right? I only look at that every once in a while. I only dabble in that every once in a while. And I'm telling you, if you don't let God eradicate all that sin, if we're not repentant and remorseful and get away from all that evil, it'll tear your marriage up. It'll tear you up. It'll destroy your children. It will hurt other people. It will come back for us. So it says that in the city, the Jews killed 500 men. If you remember from last week, they were given the right to kill women and children as well, which is pretty gruesome, but they didn't. They just killed the men and they did not seize any of their plunder. All throughout the Persian Empire, they killed 75,000 people. The fact that they did not take any of the material possessions shows that their motive was good. They're not in this for selfish gain. They're in this to protect their people from extinction. That's why they are doing this preemptive strike, if you will. And so in the capital, they killed 501 day, but, 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 but they still had more opposition. So I, I find it very interesting. Xerxes to me is, is so narcissistic and so out of touch with reality. Even when you read this part, you know, he's sitting around the palace and Esther's there and he's like, man, how many people did your people kill today? 500? Wow, that's crazy. He goes, what else do you want? And she goes, well, give us one more day because we, we haven't wiped out all of our adversaries. And he goes, okay. So he gives him another day. And then Esther gets pretty savage. Esther says, and also, can we take the corpses of Haman's 10 sons and hang them on the gallows? And the reason why they did this is this was a sign to everyone who opposed the Jews. Don't mess with Esther and her people, right? Like, like, and she made it very, very clear, sends a message to the enemies of the Jews and they hung Haman's sons on the gallows to where everyone could see it. And so while in the rural areas, they took care of all their adversaries in one day. In the city, it took two days. And because of that, when they started celebrating this, this time of liberation, they started celebrating it over two days, not just one day. And they called this Purim. And if you have any Jewish friends, um, they still celebrate Purim today. I know there's not a whole lot of, of Jewish people in Middle Tennessee. Where I am from in St. Louis, there are a lot of Jewish people. In fact, I was born in a Jewish hospital in St. Louis and St. Charles. We had whole neighborhoods that were Jewish. If you've ever been to like U-City or where Washington University is, it's almost predominantly Jewish, a lot of synagogues. There's actually a synagogue right by the Arch in St. Louis and a lot of Jewish people up there and Purim is a big deal in cities like that. And here we get to learn where Purim came from. So. A lot of reading here, be patient with me. Mordecai recorded these events and sent, uh, sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during the days the Jews, uh, because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. There were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, sending gifts to one another and to the poor. 
So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded the letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pur. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, listen to this, family, province, and city, so that the days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Let me pause here for a second. It's not in my notes. I'm not trying to sound anti-Semitic here. I, I, I promise you that. It is interesting today, if you, if you research modern-day Purim, Modern day Purim right now is a huge parade and party and people get wasted. Not everybody, but it has become just a huge party. I find it fascinating when you go back here and it says we do this so they will not lose the significance of what it is in Jewish life. I'm not picking on modern day Jews. That's not what I'm doing at all because what the Jewish people in the Old Testament encapsulate is basically how all of humanity responds. If you talk about the Jews, the Jews, when they were delivered out of Egypt, they saw the Red Sea part, manna fall from heaven, water come from a rock, a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud by the day. They saw some miraculous, crazy stuff. And right when Moses was like, like hey, give me a couple of minutes, guys. I gotta go up here and get something on a mountain. They fabricate a large golden idol and they start worshiping that instead, right? Right when he leaves for a second, um, they, they start to go crazy. It is interesting to me because this is how humanity works to where God does something miraculous like we're seeing in chapter nine here. They're delivered from annihilation, but as time goes on, generations forget and we slip right back into selfishness. Isn't that interesting how that happens? So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim in the proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them and as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practice of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command was confirmed, these, these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. So Mordecai more than likely wrote the book of Esther, which I find interesting when we read chapter 10. He also wrote these letters that were sent out to all the Jews in the Persian empire. And the letters were probably more than likely the story of how these two contradictory laws got passed and how the Jews overcame their, adver uh, their, their adversaries. And now they are to celebrate that in the month of Adar, we would say the month of March. That's when Purim is celebrated currently. So at Purim, they would eat, they would give each other presents, and they would contribute to poor people. Now, what's interesting, if you have any Jewish friends, you can blow them away with your knowledge of this. 
The reason it's called Purim is it's kind of a twisting on words. When Haman passed the law to kill all the Jews, they took some, we would call them dice, they called them the purr. They would take these dice, roll it, and whatever num number came up, that was gonna be the day that they were going to annihilate the Jews, the purr. So what Mordecai did is kind of took that, twisted it, and he said, man, it ended up coming back to get Haman, right? He was, he was hung, so it came back to get him. So we're gonna call this day of celebration Purim, after the purr. And what's fascinating, if you haven't been here, the book of Esther never mentions God directly. But at this point in the story, it is very obvious that God is working. It is very obvious that God is, is sovereign, which means he knows all, sees all. It is very obvious that God is providing because now Mordecai is the second most powerful man in the world where once upon a time he was about to get slaughtered. His people were about to be slaughtered. And so it says that Purim, was recorded in the imperial records. So all of Persia knew of this Jewish holiday called Purim. And this shows just how big of a deal Esther and Mordecai had become. And this, this, this brings us back to something that we opened up the book of Esther with. How do we, as the people of God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you know, most of us are, are Christians in this room, how do we, as the people of God, live in a pagan society? How do we live in a land that doesn't agree with what we believe in? And there's a lot of people, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, there's a lot of Christians in the United States that kind of have their head in their sand. They're like, oh, we're a Christian nation. We absolutely are not. We're absolutely not. I don't care if it says in God we trust on your quarter. That doesn't mean anything. There is no one on planet Earth that puts out the kind of filth that the United States does. No one. Man, porn is a $20 billion a year industry in the United States. It's illegal in, in basically the entire continent of Africa. We talk about how savage those people are. Look at us. So how do we as believers, Christians, function in a society where we are the minority? Well, the, the, the kind of blanket answer for that is we must be in, in extreme obedience to Jesus and we must be in extreme dependence on Jesus. And if we are obedient to God and dependent on God, God will make a way for his people. He will provide a way for his people. Chapter 10, I think is quite fascinating, very short, and I'll explain to you why I think it's fascinating. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his power and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all of his descendants. It's interesting, you know the one thing missing from the end of Esther? Esther. I'll get to that here in a second. Verse one I find really, really interesting. Kind of out of nowhere, we're assuming Mordecai wrote this, this book of the Bible. Out of nowhere, Mordecai writes in, in chapter 10, verse one, that now there was a new tax that was imposed on the people. So the mention that there is now a tax and probably an overtax on the people shows that Xerxes' heart has not changed. 
He is still materialistic. He is still narcissistic. He's still a tyrant. He, he's still not a good person. Now, what is fascinating about that is Xerxes had a front row seat to all of the miraculous things that God had done through his wife and through now his kind of adopted family member, Mordecai, but he had not changed. Here is the hard truth about that. There will be people who have access to see the things of God, but because they are so self-consumed, will miss it because they choose to miss it. What do I mean by that? If you've ever had someone in your life say, I would believe in God if I could just see God, not true. All throughout human history, people have seen God. Again, going back to the Jews coming out of Egypt, you see the Red Sea part. That's a big deal. That's not like a normal thing in nature. You see the Red Sea part. You see manna fall from heaven. You see water come out of a rock. You see a pillar of fire that you fire, uh, follow at night and a pillar of smoke. Again, Moses goes up and comes back looking all sunburned because he came into an encounter with God and he's holding tablets that God wrote on with his own fingers. You see all this, and those Jews still did not follow God. Shocking. Then you get to the New Testament, and you have God literally walking around on earth, Jesus Christ, raising the dead, healing the sick, feeding 15,000 people in one sitting with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, does all this. And what do they do with him? They put him on a cross because they believe he's a crook, because they believe he's a charlatan. After doing all of these miraculous things, if Jesus Christ were to walk through these doors right now, there'd still be people in this room going, I don't know, I'm not sold. That's how it would be. Here is the problem. Seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. You have to want to see the things of God to see the things of God. If you wanna see God, man, if it's a full moon tonight like it was last night, walk outside and look at the moon. You'll see God if you wanna see him. Look at your children today. Look at the, the, the intricacies of the human body and of nature around us and the galaxy around us. Man, God is everywhere, visible, clear as crystal. But you have to want to see that. Just like Jesus said in the book of Revelation, for those who have ears to hear. The truth is out there, but you have to want to hear it. The problem is we're so focused on ourselves that we can't see anything beyond what we already believe and what we already think. And so Xerxes had every opportunity to be humbled and changed. He just didn't wanna be. Here's the other interesting thing about this. Imagine if you will, right? A government so crazy that they would do something like this. Xerxes, when he first got married to Esther, gave out free money to everyone in the empire and then later went on to overly tax them to get all that back and more. Could you believe <laughs> that a government would do such a thing. No, we'll go. We'll keep, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. <laughs> I've never used that back button until this weekend. It's fantastic. So the conclusion of the book of Esther, ironically enough, is, is really kind of more about Mordecai. It's about this amazing turnaround in Mordecai's life that there was no one more powerful in the Persian empire except for King Xerxes than Mordecai. And again, though not directly mentioned, we see that God was absolutely at work in the life of Mordecai. But what I find so fascinating about the last chapter of Esther is there is no mention of Esther. And if you go back and read the book of Esther, she's the hero of the book of Esther. 
She, is the, she was the brains behind it. We know it was from God. She was a 14-year-old girl who was taken from her family, thrown into this awful situation, became the queen, the, 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 the queen of the most powerful man on planet Earth, lived with class and grace, depended on God, fasted and prayed for her people. At age 20, she was the one that came up with the plan that saved her entire people. And there is no mission, there, there is no mention of her, a complete omission of Esther in this book called Esther. So in studying this book of the Bible, I have absolutely fallen in love with this woman. It is, it is absolutely amazing to, to see what kind of a person she was. And I think the end of Esther where she is omitted made me even love her in this book even more. I think there is one more lesson that Esther kind of subconsciously teaches us because she's not in the last chapter. The fact that she never did it for her. She put her life on the line several times. She literally risked her life for a bunch of people. She did all of these things. And at the end of this book, it was not about her name. It was about God's name. It wasn't about her legacy. It was about God's legacy. So I have to believe that God wanted this book written the way it was written because there is one more just amazing lesson in there that it's not about us. It wasn't ultimately about Esther, though it is fascinating that we're still talking about her 2,500 years later, that she is honored. She is immortalized, if you will, in the hearts and minds of people who follow God. Pretty amazing stuff. So let's talk about some overarching lessons that we've learned in the past couple of months. The first one is, is that God uses broken and unlikely vessels. Thank you, God, right? A lot of us in this room, broken and unlikely vessels, but I think that's when God does his best work. When we acknowledge that we are unlikely vessels, when we humble ourselves and say, God, if you don't fix me, I'm gonna be broken. God uses people like that. We also learn that God is sovereign. Very churchy word, it just means that nothing happens outside of the scope of God's knowledge and understanding. God is sovereign, we understand that. We also understand now that God wants what's best for us. I don't have to understand everything about God, but I understand that God loves me and wants what's best for me. He is sovereign, he wants what's best for me. We also learn from the book of Esther because of Haman that evil will always become a victim of its own devices. This is a lesson that American culture has completely missed. We live in a society right now, right? where we let our kids play video games where you can rape people and beat up cops and shoot people for no reason, and that's fun, and we let them do that for seven, eight hours a day. We have social media. Uh, you know, you have parents who don't raise their kids because they're too worried about, you know, how many TikTok followers they have, even though they're 40-year-old moms. We have, we have all of this violence, and we have misogynistic music that we pump into our girls' heads, calling them awful names and objectifying them, and our women of the year are former strippers, and we do all this stuff in the United States, and then a couple of kids walk into a school and shoot the place up, and we go, how did this happen? Do you want to know how it happens? Jesus told us in the book of Matthew. Jesus says in the book of Matthew that whatever comes in through the eye contaminates the entire body. We wonder why when, when porn is a $20 billion industry in the United States, and we wonder why there are so many sexually transmitted diseases, broken marriages, why there's so many women who think they have to be a size zero or they're not worth anything. We wonder why all this is going on. Constant garbage in, and then we're shocked when garbage comes out. And Jesus said, whatever you take in, 
contaminates you. It contaminates you. Evil will always slit its own throat. Evil will always eat its own tail. It will always become hypocritical, right? Self-righteousness and all of this this consumption of of self and whatever we want to do, it's not gonna end well. It is not gonna end well. Evil always becomes a victim of its own devices. It always lights its own fire. It always goes up in its own blaze every single time. Human history tells us this. It tells us this. But we're too smart for history nowadays, aren't we? That's why we believe in what's called revisionist history. We go backwards. If you've ever read the book, I didn't say this at any of the other services, but again, it's the 11 o'clock. We have all day. Um, I didn't say this in any other services. If you go back and read the book 1984, it's not a very happy book, but if you go back and read 1984, the, the, the protagonist in there, if you can call him that, his full-time job is to go back through old newspapers and rewrite history. because we're too smart for history. So we go back and we don't learn from the Roman Empire, we don't learn from the Persians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or anybody, right? Because we're Americans and we're just too smart. Where was I at? We must also learn to balance our loyalty to God while living as good citizens in a pagan society. If you were waiting for America to become like this great Christian utopia, I would not hold your breath because you're gonna suffocate. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. But we have to learn how to be, as the Bible says, aliens in a foreign land. We have to learn to be good Christians while also being good citizens in this pagan environment. Is it easy? Heck no. It is very, very tough, but it's what we're called to do. We also talked about today that we have to live in God's favor. How do we do that? We live according to the principles and teachings of God. The Bible says in James that the prayers, I said this last week, the prayers of a righteous person are effective. By logic, we can take in, 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 we, we should be able to know that if we are not righteous people, our prayers are not effective. And so this leads us to believe that my relationship with God directly changes the dynamics of how I see God work in my life. So oftentimes people come to me and they're just like, I prayed for God to do something, but he didn't do anything. Well, if we have lived our whole life in rebellion to the teachings of God, we are essentially saying, God, we don't want you in our business. And then all of a sudden, when the crap hits the fan, we're like, God, come on. And he's like, well, wait a second. I thought you did not want me in your business. Now, if we're humble enough to repent for how we've lived and address the evil in us, God wants to get in our business. But we cannot live in complete rebellion to God and then expect God to answer all of our prayers. Why? Because the Bible says the prayers of righteous people are effective. Because when we're living by, the, by, by the, the teachings of God, we pray for the things of God. And when we pray for the things of God, we get those things. That's why our prayers are more effective. So true success in this life. What do you mean by true success? Joy, contentment, peace, healthy relationships, right? Fulfillment. True success in this life depends on our relationship with God. What does that mean? It means that we must be repentant of sin. I'm flabbergasted by how many Christians in the United States, are, are, they get offended when I say things like, are you telling me I have to repent every time I sin? Yes, I'm telling you that. That you need to live repentant. 
even, are you saying one sin is gonna separate me from God forever? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you, if you are a follower of Christ, you're claiming to love Christ more than anything. And if you love Christ more than anything and you do something that upsets him, if you love him, I would think you would apologize for that. I would think you would want his forgiveness for that. One mistake is not gonna separate me from my wife forever, but if I love her and I do something that hurts her, I wanna say, hey, I am so sorry. I'm, I'm gonna try my best not to do that again because I love you. Are we repentant? Are we praying? Are we reading the word of God? Are we doing what the word of God tells us to do? Are we trusting God? And if we're being honest in this room this morning, trusting God is not always easy. We will not always understand everything on this side of heaven, but we have to understand the character and nature of God. And the only way to understand the character and nature of God is we must spend time with God. Praying, reading the word of God, just thinking on God, meditating on God, turning off the radio sometimes and just sitting, thinking about him, talking to him. We also have to understand that we are finite beings, that we are the creation. We need to humble ourselves in order to understand the nature of God. How arrogant is it? And we say this all the time in our society. Well, because I don't understand how everything began, I don't believe that. Wow, so you are the intellectual standard for everything that is right and wrong. Man, that is pretty presumptuous. That is pretty arrogant to say. Just because I don't understand it, it can't be true. We are the creation, he is the creator. And we need to humble ourselves and we need to say, man, he's the one that orchestrated everything. I'm just gonna put my trust in that. But to do that, we have to know the character of God, the nature of God. We also have to understand that this life is not about us. This sentence goes against everything you will see in pop culture, everything you will listen to, everything you will see on the news, everything you will read. This goes against everything that American culture is pummeling down your throats all the time. The meaning of life is not the pursuit of you. The meaning of life is the pursuit of the one who created you. In a society right now that talks about identity in everything, right? We identify as everything, everything except for the one thing that created us. And it's no wonder that we're such an aggressive, restless, uh, 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 dissatisfied culture because we are trying to literally put a, a, a square peg in a round hole. We are trying to identify with things that we are not created in the image in. Here's the thing. You cannot possibly understand who you are unless you start to understand who made you. Your life is not about the pursuit of self. If anyone asks you what is the meaning of life, it is the pursuit of the creator. It is the pursuit of our origin, the pursuit of where we came from and hopefully where we're going. Here's the other thing. Let's say that you're a Christian in here and you're doing what is right. Let me challenge all of us for a second, including myself. If you're benevolent with your finances, if you serve all the time, if you have great ideas and, and you give those up for, for other people to do amazing things, what if you never get the credit? What if your name is never honored? Would we still do it? What if there was never an Instagram pic of us with a minority child in a third world country? What if there was never any hearts or thumbs up or people saying, man, you're so good, you're so smart, you're so amazing. What if that never happened? Would you still do the right thing? Is it still about the kingdom of God? Hey, listen, I'm not picking on you. I can be entitled and selfish, just like anybody else. 
I can slip into that easy. You, you, please hear me out. You, you build a big church, you plant other churches, you do all these things, and I can find myself going, oh, well, I have earned this, right? I have deserved, man, I haven't earned jack crap. And here's the thing as I get older, it is less about my name and it is about his name. And there is a certain fear within me, and I hope that all of us have a certain level of this fear. Whenever I feel people start to, to, start to, to, to put accolades or, or affirmation or compliments on me, I have to deflect that crap, man. It's God, and it's not false humility, it's God. If you knew me, it's God, it's God. So would we still do the right thing if we never got any credit? And here is the most beautiful irony about Jesus Christ. The irony and beauty of the God we serve is that when we choose to make our life not about ourselves but about him, ultimately it benefits us. Do you know Jesus has nothing to benefit from being in a relationship with you? I know we think we're like the end-all be-all of everything. He has nothing to benefit from a relationship with us. He loves us. He created us because he wanted to be with us, but he did not need us. That's bad theology. If you ever hear anyone say, well, God created humanity because he needed us, nope. He is perfect. He needed nothing. God has perfect community within himself, Father, Son, Spirit. He didn't need anybody. But he loves us. And the beautiful irony of God is, is if in this little vapor of life that we live right now, the Bible says in James that this life is just a vapor. It comes out and dissipates, goes away. If we will use this little bit of smidgen of time right now to make it all about God, do you know what the New Testament says about heaven? It says that if we have given our lives to Jesus, that when the world ends, when Jesus comes back, when we die, whatever comes first, right? That when that happens, it says in the New Testament that we become co-heirs with Christ. Listen to that for a second. That if we, if, we, if we dedicate our lives to God, if we make it about his name and not our name during this short little blip of time that we have, right? It says that in eternity, we're not gonna be digging ditches for Jesus for eternity. He's up there drinking like a, you know, like a, a Arnold Palmer and we're all you know, digging out ditches and, and, and stuff for God. That's not the way it's going to be in Arnold Palmer. It's a tea and anyways. So it's not gonna be that for eternity. That when we cross over through the pearly gates, Jesus says, it's yours. You are co-heirs with me. Does anyone else in this room think that is fascinating? that it's not this, 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 this indentured servant eternity that we have to look forward to, that it says in the book of Revelation towards the end of it, that he will wipe out the old universe, he will wipe out the old earth, he will create a new universe, a new earth, and then it says a city comes down and rests on the new earth, and it says the gates of the city are always open. It says that in the book of Revelation. That leads us to believe we don't just inherit this beautiful gold city with like sweet condos in it that we get to live in together, that we have inherited a new planet to explore and not just that, a new universe to explore. And Jesus says, it's yours, it's yours. Do you know who figured this out? You know who had figured out eternity? John the Baptist. In the Gospel of John, in chapter three, John the Baptist is talking, different John than who wrote the, the book of John. John the Baptist is talking, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, and he says, I, and, and at this point, John is getting all this attention. Everyone thinks John is the Savior. Are you the Messiah, John? You're a pretty amazing guy. A lot of people following you. You're baptizing people. You're doing amazing things. And John says, no, 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 no. It ain't me. 
I have to be made smaller and he has to be made bigger. Why did John say that? John who lost his head for Jesus, literally lost his head for Jesus. John said that because he understood his eternity. That if I am faithful with this little bit of time here, if it's less about me and more about him, John fully understood what he was going to inherit. He fully understood. So here's the challenge for you and I this morning in 2022 in the most entitled decadent nation on planet earth. How does it become less about us and more about the creator of us? And I'm gonna tell you, in your life, if you will take the posture of I have to decrease and he has to increase, I give you my word. Not only will God bless you in eternity, God will change things in your life right now. God will honor you now. God will honor you and bless you in ways that you couldn't have even comprehended before you gave your life to him. But it has to be less about me and it has to be more about him. It has to be less about me getting credit and accolades and more about all the honor going to him. Completely countercultural. Completely countercultural. Do you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room this morning, and maybe you are not a believer yet, but you're, you're digging, you're looking, you're searching, if you're in the room and that, that applies to you, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here, up at the corner of the stage. If you have any questions for Greg, he'd love to talk with you. We're not offended by questions. We'd love to talk with you. If you are in this room and you need prayer for anything, there are men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray with you. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I've been very honest and transparent with you today that I can be entitled, that I can struggle with things. I've told you that today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something else. If you are in this room and you also sometimes struggle with being selfish or entitled, I'm gonna tell you the best thing you can do this morning. Walk up to one of these men and women and just confess it. I struggle with entitlement. I struggle with selfishness and affirmation. I struggle with that. Can you please pray for me? If you will confess that and let someone pray with you, I give you my word, it'll feel like a ton of bricks just came off your chest. But you can get prayer for anything up here. Also, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and if you are sitting in the center section on those posts, there is bread and wine, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. If you're ever questioning how much God loves you, God sent his only son to die on a cross for you, to shed his blood for our forgiveness, to, to give us his Holy Spirit, to empower us, to encourage us, to counsel us. And if we will just live this life honoring him, he will honor us in a way that our brains can't even wrap our minds around for eternity. God, I love you. God, I thank you so much for the men and women in this room. Lord, I pray that you keep them safe, God. Not so much physically, though I pray for that as well. God, I pray that you keep them spiritually safe, mentally safe, God. I pray that you touch their relationships. I pray that you touch their kids. I pray, God, that you just keep your hand on their minds, Lord. God, as we go back out into a world that is hostile, confused, broken, I pray, God, that we can be good citizens. I pray that we can be good Christians, God. I pray that we can love others and love you. I pray, God, that as we go back out in a very self-centered culture, that we can intentionally make it less about us and more about you. Let us decrease, Father, and in our lives, let you increase.
that you become bigger. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.